The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Scorebox, and these are your headlines. COVID cases in China hit fresh record highs, with new local infections topping 30,000, that weighing on investor sentiment in the region. The ECB stresses further hikes are needed to prevent inflation from becoming entrenched, with board member Isabel Schnabel signalling the central bank is not yet planning to slow the pace of hikes. We will need to raise interest rates further, probably into restrictive territory, so as to ensure that inflation returns to our medium-term inflation target as quickly as possible and second-round effects do not materialize. Well, elsewhere, EU states remain deadlocked over a price cap on Russian oil, whilst energy ministers in Brussels agree to revisit a price cap on gas next month. The Czech energy minister telling CNBC the block must act as winter sets in. These are exceptional times, so we do not have several months uh, dragging uh, if we really want to arrive at a workable solution. And retailers brace for one of the busiest shopping days of the year, with US consumers expected to increase their Black Friday spending, while European shoppers face a downturn. So let's pick up with the latest from China. Authorities there have reported a fresh record high in COVID cases, prompting cities across the country to tighten restrictions. Beijing, Shanghai, Chongqing and Guangzhou are among the major cities to report a rise in cases. Meanwhile, Reuters is reporting that over 20,000 new employees at the Foxconn factory in Zhengzhou have left amid worker unrest over COVID curbs and pay. Well, shipments from uh, Foxconn's uh, Zhengzhou factory could fall by at least 30% in November. This according to a Reuters report, which cited a person with direct knowledge of the matter. The report claims the recent worker unrest is the primary factor behind the weaker outlook for the major Apple supplier. Well, this uh, story just gets more and more complicated. Let's get back out to Sam here. And we did wonder, Sam, with the confirmation of Xi Jinping's third term, whether we would see some form of pivot on the treatment of COVID zero in China. Barring minor adjustments, we haven't really seen any significant departure. And now we've got this dramatic rise in cases. What happens from here? Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, I think it's hard to imagine uh, any sort of realistic view that we could have uh, assumed that we were going to see a huge shift in, in zero COVID because, of course, we do know that the Chinese political system, the leadership, uh, has poured a lot of political capital uh, very much into this strategy. Uh, but what we're seeing now is it being very complicated and clearly very difficult to actually stick to some of their announcements that they would be 
reducing and relaxing some of these COVID curbs. And that is also dashing hopes of a speedy reopening. When we talk about uh, this zero COVID strategy, what the Chinese government sort of mean by this is they have this dynamic clearance policy. And what that is, is basically removing these positive cases from the transmission chain. But that hasn't really been working in their favour too much because despite the lockdowns, despite the restrictions, despite all the testing and the health codes, we are now hitting new records twice this week. Again today, reaching nearly 33,000 new infections uh, this morning. And so what we've seen as a result of that uh, is more restrictions, more of these localised lockdowns. They're not these sort of blanket lockdowns that we have seen over the last three years, uh, but certainly more testing. And this is going all the way from Harbin to Hainan to Sichuan to Shanghai. So we are seeing this very much widespread. And I'll give you an example of the complicated nature of what's happening here. There is an area called Shijiazhuang, which is just to the west of Beijing. And a couple of weeks ago, a lot of people were talking about this area because they'd actually dropped all their COVID curbs. Now they are reporting over 3,000 cases. And that just goes to show uh, how quickly this virus is, of course, spreading over in China. And of course, we've had uh, this really the fallout of uh, this zero COVID strategy on full display at this iPhone factory over in Zhengzhou uh, this week, as you were just talking about. And really, we've seen those videos which have been uh, fairly rare and unusual of uh, protests, people clashing with law enforcement. And as you mentioned, we have had these lines uh, out of Reuters this morning, uh, certainly suggesting that uh, Foxconn is now saying that at least 30 percent of this month's output uh, is going to be impacted. Now, that is a change in the language to what they were saying previously, where they were saying up to 30%. And that came after, as you mentioned as well, those reports of uh, more than 20,000. Uh, these are new hires actually leaving this plant. And this is uh, over, of course, a lot of the uh, disruptions that we have seen as a result of complaints about pay and also these living conditions. And that came off the back of yesterday uh, that we heard that Foxconn was actually going to be uh, giving these workers some money uh, if they actually resigned and left the factory, guys. It's not the greatest start to, to a work contract, is it, to, to go out there and protest against your new employer? So I can see why some have decided to take the money and leave. But I want to bring up Apple because uh, supply chain matters these days as we talk about ESG. And very hard optics, no doubt, for Apple to manage when its largest supplier for its uh, key devices now having this clash with workers. We are seeing a report crossed in the South China Morning Post that Apple has a team on the ground. What are you hearing on this front? Well, Karen, I think what we will be seeing is, of course, Apple discussing this situation, of course, with Foxconn. We don't know the details of, of how many people are certainly on the ground there. But, of course, Apple had certainly flagged a situation in China and many in the market had certainly interpreted that as less of a sort of message or a signal to investors and more perhaps to the Chinese government because there is this increasing frustration, of course, with this zero COVID strategy. So it's going to be very interesting to see see uh, what Apple manages to, to ascertain here and what sort of agreement they, they manage to come to. But uh, really, this is just another example of, of the um, frustration that we see over this zero COVID strategy and the impact that this is having on these companies, because it's not just been uh, in the tech space uh, with, with companies like Foxconn, but it's also been uh, with, you know, in the in EV space as well, electric cars. We also saw Neo uh, a couple of weeks ago saying that they had had uh, some production issues as 
as well. So uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what these uh, Apple uh, people and this team come away with. Guys, back to you. Sam, thank you very much for bringing us the latest there. Steve? Yeah, well, what can they do, though? If, if the, the authorities say X, I guess there's very little Apple can do to get those products to market, especially at this key time as well. Right, let's have a look at some of these markets. It's relatively calm stuff. The Hang Seng is down nine-tenths of one percent. The Kospi down in South Korea flat. Shanghai Composite is rallying mildly, as indeed is the ASX 200 in Australia. Let's move into the, uh, the Hang Seng a little bit and do a little bit of a deeper dive into the tech sector as well, which is currently down 2.64%. So uh, a little bit of negativity on one of the highest uh, volatility indices uh, on the globe. European indices. Well, this week we've been hitting three-month highs on some of these European indices as well. The stock 600, I think it was Wednesday that hit a, a three-month high. But we are uh, we had a, a stately session to the upside for the Kakarant and the Zetradax yesterday. The FTSE actually managed to trade flat. But I've been looking at a lot of the constituent members and there's a lot of uh, oscillation as ever in some of these stocks. And I was looking at some of the XD stocks yesterday and they looked fairly well bid despite the fact that, uh, of course, they went ex-dividend in the market. Uh, yesterday, uh, SMI. Interestingly, putting on six tenths of one percent, despite again the woes of Credit Suisse once again dominating the news uh, out of Zurich this week. We saw a similar gain on the FTSE MIB. Let's have a look at the US futures. Of course, we haven't had a session. I don't think it's going to be the most liquid session. It tends not to be on the Thanksgiving Friday. But as we know, uh, a lot of these traders are very ambidextrous as well and can manage to buy stuff and trade at the same time. Uh, the five-year paper, 3.8%. 10-year paper continues to abate on the yield, 3.66%. There is a narrative developing, and I don't know if it's a dangerous herd-like bell curve distribution mentality, that actually we've seen the worst of the CPI and PPI, and actually the interest rate rises to come will be less. That is the one that we've, we've had a narrative endorsed by various Fed members who are looking for lesser pace of rate hikes. That's what the pivot looks like these days. Not uh, no rate hikes and not cutting rates. It's a lesser pace of growth in those rates as well. That's the narrative. 4.4% at the short end on the two-year note. Dollar crosses look like this. What have we got? Pounds still at parity. <laughs> 121. Um, 104 on the euro dollar. Dollar yen trading 138.63. So the dollar is getting an absolute pounding at the moment on the back of that other narrative that other central banks will be slower to lessen the pace than the Fed at the moment. Um, Karen, you are looking at ECB minutes, I understand. I am indeed. ECB policymakers have expressed fears that inflation could become more entrenched, according to minutes from their October meeting. Governing Council members said rates would need to increase further to bring inflation down to target, with the pause in tightening likely only considered in the event of a prolonged and deep recession. The ECB raised rates by 75 basis points last month, bringing its total hikes to 200 basis points since July. ECB Executive Board Member Isabel Schnabel said smaller rate hikes could slow the pace of the central bank's fight against price pressures. We will need to raise interest rates further probably into restrictive territory, so as to ensure that inflation returns to our medium-term inflation target as quickly as possible and second round effects do not materialize. Incoming data so far suggest that the room for slowing down the pace of interest rate adjustments remains limited, even as we are approaching estimates of the neutral rate. 
Germany's economy is set to suffer a significant downturn in the fourth quarter. The Bundesbank's financial stability review said rising costs are limiting the amount of financial leeway households and businesses have, meanwhile increasing the risk of future credit defaults. Germana spoke with the Bundesbank Vice President Claudia Buch and asked her about the knock-on effects of the challenging macro environment and whether there is enough resilience in the financial sector. The financial sector certainly can't rely on fiscal support coming in directly or indirectly in the future. So we also need the financial system to be sufficiently resilient against a general increase in, in credit risk, which is, is clearly um, in the in the pipeline because of the recessionary tendencies that you mentioned, because of the stress that uh, the current uh, risks are imposing on the on the German economies. I want to turn the focus to real estate and house prices. In this report, uh, you say you do not expect to see a significant correction in house prices, though for years we talk about an overvalued house market in Germany. Why is it? Why are higher interest rates not impacting the real estate market more? Yeah. So let me first of all give you some some recent evidence on the on the real estate market. So the the pricing and the overvalue potential overvaluation has been a discussion discussion for many years. So we do see a slowdown in the the price growth for um, um, residential real estate. Um, but it's not that the overall that dynamic has reversed. So we still have overvaluations in the market. What we are concerned about is also to what extent this is driven by loosening of credit standards, by a very fast um, growth in credit, residential um, mortgages. And there we also see a slowdown. So we don't currently um, think that additional measures are taken to slow down uh, the buildup of vulnerabilities in this market segment. But we do think that we need to keep monitoring the market because we know that, of course, uh, private households are very much exposed to to mortgage 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 loans, so that's the the biggest component in in private household debt. Um, as to the impact of changes in interest rates, um, you have to be aware that the German uh, um, mortgage market is a bit different than the market in, in many other countries. We have a very high share of mortgages with fixed interest rates, so that mitigates the impact for of rising rates for households. Of course, the risk doesn't disappear. It's still in, in the system, but this um, exposure to, to changes in, in interest rate, interest rate risk is largely with the financial sector. The, the banks have done that, that borrowing, um, that lending, excuse me, uh, with regard to, to mortgages. Moody's says its EMEA outlook for 2023 is negative with credit conditions set to tighten next year. The ratings agency warns that it expects European default rates to nearly double to 3.9%. Frederick Durensen is with us, senior analyst for Moody's. Um, Frederick, nice to see you this morning and welcome. It's very interesting listening to uh, Isabel Schnabel because in the, in the big reveal, I think, on the minutes, we also got a good line on the bond markets and um, ultimately the message on euro area non-financial corporations bond issuance has declined markedly is this because these um, companies are finding it hard to borrow at the yields they want or they actually don't need the money what, what would be the implication of that information I think it's a bit of both. Clearly, companies have found it already difficult to, to borrow at higher rates, and those rates are going to continue to increase. That's our expectation for next year. And the refinancing needs that those companies have 
are increasing, but they're still manageable for 2023. So it's likely that companies who can afford it are actually going to wait to come to market until the rate situation stabilizes. So I guess the question behind my question is, what does that imply then in terms of businesses that will go into distress through this cycle? Um, within your report, the suggestion that we will see uh, a pickup in default rates, but actually they've been markedly low so far, given the trauma that we've seen to the European economy. Yes, and that's going to still stay pretty much in line with the global average that we've seen historically, which is about 4%. And that's where we see those rates of defaults coming for, for next year. That's because unemployment, for example, is still going to, to stay quite low by historical standards as well. The labor markets have been, have been quite tight, but obviously we expect the credit spreads to, to get worse and that's going to drive more of those defaults. Frederick, it's Black Friday and I can see in your report that you're pointing out the erosion of household purchasing power will reduce demand in consumer-facing industries. We're watching what Black Friday brings for a sort of litmus test on just how the household is holding up at this point. What do you say to those CEOs who have just not seen any change in demand at this point? They're still riding the good times, stimulus checks, pent-up demand, and they're just simply not seeing in their business. But yet they're facing all of these warnings from various quarters of business. What do you say to them? Well, we see that there are a number of sectors which will actually be resilient, you know, gaming, telecommunications, airlines, which are still recovering, for example. Then you have sectors like pharma and healthcare, which are typically resilient in economic downturns. So there are some sectors which will continue to fare well, even in this tougher environment. But obviously, when discretionary demand is involved and when you're relying on uh, consumers' disposable income, that's going to, to, to get tougher, especially as the extent of higher energy cost hasn't fully come through yet. If you consider the other side of the equation, what wages people have to spend, and if you look at various industries, I mean, Volkswagen inked an 8.5% increase over the next couple of years for some of its workers. Those workers, unless they get fired, are sitting on more cash than they've had previously. Of course, some of it's going out in terms of extra expenditure, but they are sitting pretty. Others in maybe technology who have lost their job and perhaps are still waiting to get a new one, they're in not such a good position. How do you see the wash-up of the labour market impacting that consumption pattern going into this downturn? Well, we think that the, the labour uh, costs are going to be more of a headwind for companies next year because they're still catching up with the high inflation that we've seen. And the expectation is that inflation will also stay high. So I think we clearly see wage inflation spiral as being um, you know, a, a, a risk, but uh, this, is, this is yet to fully come through. Uh, Frederick, I'm looking at Exhibit 4 on your charts, page 5 of 13. Very, very interesting stuff. Um, the longer-term default rate in Europe is around about 4%. Um, it could triple, according to your severe um, scenario outlooks. Well, I mean, do you think that's going to happen? That's a severe pessimistic scenario. Is it so severely that's, pessimistic, that's, that's, given that's, the fact that interest rates have gone up so aggressively and all these pressures we're seeing? Is that actually severe enough? We'll, 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 have, to, we'll have to tell when the rates, uh, I think, stabilise uh, next year. That, that's really one of the big, big unknowns, um, as well as consumers' you know, willingness to, to continue to spend uh, or, or not. And, and, and also how the energy situation uh, pans out before, uh, sorry, after, the, after the winter. So, so I'm slightly confused. You, you're basically just saying it is a scenario, but you don't necessarily think it's going to happen, yeah? 
We have to forecast a wide range of scenarios because there's very high uncertainty and volatility in the capital markets today, and that's always how we forecast defaults. But the baseline but scenario, it, as I said, is, been, is I hear what you're saying, about but 4%. Look, let me be blunt with you. The ratings agencies have missed the last two major crises and haven't given us enough warnings, both in the dot-com bubble bursting at the turn of the century and in the great financial crisis. Surely your predictive powers are a little bit better this time around. I would certainly hope so. Okay, all right. Ask you about the impact of the sovereign because I was watching the German Bund over the course of the last couple of weeks in particular and then over this year, and you've seen very strong moves in what is safe haven trade. How does that impact others further down the curve when the sovereign is moving so rapidly in a short period of time? I don't think we've, we've commented on, on that in particular in the, in, in the report. So, um further down the line as we talk about financing costs. I mean, you, we're talking about the safest of safe haven paper here at the top end that's moving. Then you look further down in consumer-facing industries, industrials, others that are facing more of a cyclical impact. Surely there, there must be greater risk now coming through because you've got such a big swing in the, the safe haven German paper. Well, as I said, there are, there are a number of industries which will continue to be to be resilient, and you know those uh, that should feed through to, to 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 good demand and investor appetite. You know, on on the debt side, particularly for the higher rated companies, for smaller companies, you know, this is going to to be more difficult and 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 more costly. Um. It seems to me one of the bigger problems is going to be for Europe, the non-bank financial sector largely, and whether it's able to continue lending into the SME segment. Um, I don't think you address it specifically on the report, but that is clearly a major challenge at this point, isn't it? That's right. In, in general, we see that investor appetite or the availability of capital is going to be lower for, for Europe, but there are still supporting factors in the lower rated names like CLO issuance, for example. But clearly we've seen that central banks not only are raising interest rates, but they're also reducing their bond buying programs and the liquidity in the debt markets uh, is, is bound to reduce compared to historical levels. Frederick, let me have one more go at this. Um, you've given a range of, range of scenarios and we've talked about the predictive powers of Moody's and the other ratings agencies as well. What do you think is the scenario? You've got a, a huge range uh, of outcomes as well on what you see from the current situation. Given your historical perspective, given your knowledge of the market as well, what do you think is going to happen? I think really what's driving the baseline scenario being, you could say, of um, still quite mild rise in defaults compared to, the, to a level that's basically in line with the historical level is, is the fact that um, you know, the investor protection that exists in debt documentation is, is, is very limited, so covenants um, are, are quite weak, um, and they will not be triggering uh, defaults, or that's unlikely. And the other factor to look at is, is the fact that the refinancing needs are clearly um, increasing, but they are increasing gradually, and so the pressure for companies to refinance and if they're under pressure to restructure their debt, which we would likely call a default, um, is, is increasing. But it, it's, it, it's not a major challenge yet for 2023. That's likely to increase rather in tw into 2024 or 2025. All right. Very interesting piece of research. Thank you very much indeed for joining us and have a good day. Uh, Frédéric Duranson, who is a senior analyst at Moody's. Coming up on the show, no deal yet. Uh, European energy ministers kick the can down the road. Never heard that before, have you? After heated discussions on a gas price cap. And for more on the COVID situation in China, as well as the impact on markets, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. To the latest around Ukraine and many cities in Ukraine remain without heat or power after devastating Russian airstrikes on the country's energy infrastructure. Residents in Kyiv have been warned to brace for further attacks and stock up on essential supplies. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said work to restore electricity continues, but there are issues with fixing water supplies in 15 regions. Zelensky said the attacks were an act of revenge from Russia. Almost every hour, I receive reports of strikes by the occupiers at Kherson and other communities of the region. Such terror began immediately after the Russian army was forced to flee from the Kherson region. This is the revenge of those who lost. They do not know how to fight. The only thing they can still do is terrorize, either energy terror or artillery terror or missile terror. That's all that Russia has degraded to under its current leaders. Well, I'm in shock at the next read. EU leaders failed to agree on a deal to cap gas prices. With some branding the plan a joke, yeah. Can I, can I be editorial? I'm with them. Uh, a proposed cap of 275 euros per megawatt hour failed to impress. Me too. Uh, leaving the block in limbo. Some wanted a lower cap. Others wanted no cap at all. Uh, ministers had been expected to sign off on a broad package including a joint gas purchase agreement, emergency measures to share supplies and looser requirements for renewable energy. Well, the Czech trade minister downplayed the lack of a concrete deal, saying the group was sending a clear message of unity. Uh, one would beg to differ. But anyway, despite some tough negotiations. The question was quite heated. And you all know that there are very divergent views on the level of cap proposed by the Commission. But this was an opening debate which would serve as a starting point for the agreement we want to reach in December. Sylvia caught up with the Maltese energy minister who said the price cap, yes, was too high. These things together, in my point of view, will um, put us in a situation where um, that mechanism will never be triggered, apart from other obstacles related to the mechanism. So on that proposal, I believe that there is still a lot of work that needs to be done. So does that mean that this is going to drag for several weeks, several months? Will we actually see a cap on gas prices at any point be approved at the EU level? These are exceptional times, so we do not have several months uh, dragging uh, if we really want to arrive at a workable solution. Ultimately, what Malta needs, and I'm sure that most of the member states need the same, is a workable solution. Um, this is a situation that is affecting all EU member states. So when we look at this package, we want to make sure that we have something where all the EU member states are really coming together because this is not a crisis that is impacting one member state or the other. But time is of the essence. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.